Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. As you probably know by now, there is absolutely nothing I'm worse at than remembering to ask you to give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download the program. Ergo, please give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download the program. Thanks very much. On to this week's program, our second straight two-artist double bill. Our guests are artists Stacy Kranitz and Christine Potter. They're included in a long arc, Photography in the American South since 1845, at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. It's the second major survey of Southern photography in less than a year. The exhibition considers the South as a forger of American identity and examines how Southern photographers have contributed to both the advance of their medium and the U.S. project. A long arc was curated by Gregory J. Harris and Sarah Kennel and will be on view through January 14, 2024 in Atlanta, before traveling to the Addison Gallery of American Art in Andover, Mass., and to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond. The catalog was published by Aperture. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about $70. I'll introduce Stacy Kranitz here and Christine Potter later in the program. Kranitz's work, primarily made in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, presents the complexity and instability of a rugged region on which industry has long preyed. Her work is in the collection of museums such as the Harvard Art Museums and the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Her 2022 book, As It Was Given to Me, a real stunner, was published by Twin Palms and was shortlisted for a Paris Photo Aperture First Photo Book Award. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about $75 to $80. Stacy Kranitz, after the break. Closing soon at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy is the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. The exhibition closes October 1st, so make sure to plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. L.A.-based artist Kelly Akashi is known for her materially hybrid works that are compelling both formally and conceptually. Originally trained in analog photography, the artist is drawn to fluid, impressionable materials and old-world craft techniques such as glass blowing, casting, candle making, bronze, and silicone casting. Encompassing a selection of artworks made over the past decade, Kelly Akashi Formations features a newly commissioned series in which Akashi explores the inherited impact of her family's imprisonment in a Japanese-American incarceration camp during World War II. Now through February 2024, witness Kelly Akashi Formations at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. 
And we're back. Stacey Kranitz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Over the eh, last decade or so, you've become perhaps the most prominent artist to make work about life and land in the Southern Appalachian Mountains. It is a place to which you came from Los Angeles, or at least greater Los Angeles and New York City. So how and why did the Southern Appalachians become a place of interest and, and subject? About 2009, I went through a kind of crisis with my work. And, you know, I've always been a magazine and a newspaper photographer on assignment. And I found this was sort of the, my dream job, the thing that I most wanted to do. And I went out and I started working in that industry. And like so many people, you, you end up realizing that the industry that you're working in is really not what you thought it was. And fortunately for me, there was a big financial crash in 2008. And the media industry was one of the casualties. And it gave a chance to really kind of think about what was making me so unhappy um, doing that kind of work. You know, and the thing that I kept thinking about was this idea of how like my work kind of lived on the surface of an idea. And I really wanted it to live the idea. And so I kind of set out to make more intimate bodies of work. And I also was looking for a way to talk about some of the failures of the documentary tradition. It's a tradition that I love, but it's also very problematic. And so I was working on another project called From the Study on Postpubescent Manhood. And that project happened to be in Appalachia. So I found myself there. You know, Let I me knew... interrupt for a quick second. That yeah. project was in Southern Ohio, right? Yes, Southern Ohio, Southeastern uh, Ohio, the Appalachian section of Ohio. And I realized that I was you know, in this place that had been harmed by photography and you know, had been sort of forced into being the poster child for the war on poverty. And the relationship with photography was very contentious in this particular place. And so I set out to kind of understand better what Appalachia was and because I happened to just be there. And so, and I had some time on my hands before I started graduate school. <laughs> so, so I set out in my car and I started making circles and kind of exploring this place. And I remember when I first started making the work, I was really interested in stereotypes and the idea of stereotypes uh, because, you know, the, they get a real bad rap, but they're, you know, they're useful to us as humans to help us understand and process a place. And so I would go and find those stereotypes and then I would attempt to undo that stereotype, find something that completely defied. Um, so like, uh, I of course went to snake handling churches, <laughs> but then I, you know, of I found- course. Yes. <laughs> and then a, a clan rally as well. Uh, you know, I, I found like a queer commune. And so I think the very beginning of the work was really about kind of looking at stereotypes. The oeuvre in, in general is an oeuvre oriented around complicating, reductive narratives and understandings of place and people. So the region in which we both live, you live on the eastern Tennessee side of the southern Appalachians, kind of just where they're beginning to grow up. And I live on the western North Carolina side, kind of in the middle of them, 
is richly represented in, in United States art. And art has been impactful within this region. Think of George Massa and his impact on the Appalachian Trail and the creation of Great Smoky Mountains National Park, or Elliot Porter and, and the Clean Water Act. But that history is generally been skipped over by coastal arbiters. I mean, you won't find Massa's work in any coastal collections, for example, right? So you more or less opened your book, as it was given to me, with an image of a painting establishing this region within the tradition of 19th century American painting. And there are other 19th century American paintings noted throughout the book. So so that book that you, I'm sorry, that painting you more or less opened the book with is a George Caleb Bingham, specifically Bingham's Daniel Boone escorting settlers through the Cumberland Gap. And other pictures of Boone, think William Ranney, are prominent throughout the book. Why are those pictures important to your practice? I came across this catalog. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called the Columbus of the Woods. And it's a collection of images of depicting Daniel Boone throughout his life. And it really captivated- Columbus of the Woods sounds like a fungus, but go on. It does sound like a fungus. <laughs> As I said it, I was like, oh, that sounds off. Uh, but uh, it is the title of the exhibition and the catalog that I have. Uh, oddly, I have two copies. Anyway, so I was really interested in you know, the history of the documentary tradition and how it kind of evolved from this sort of like colonial construct. And I felt like Daniel Boone, depictions of Daniel Boone really uh, were a great way to sort of talk about how we ended up, you know, this, this idea of the travel narrative, these sort of colonial travel narratives, I feel like they kind of are part of the lineage that that I am participating in. And, you know, on my end, it would be, I guess you would call it like the genre of road trip photography. So you're looking at like uh, Alex Oth, um, Justin Curlin, you know, this Robert Frank, right, this history of people. And, and I really wanted to make sure that I, I connected myself to that history. It's the history of an outsider becoming an insider. It's the sort of move of, of Daniel Boone into Kentucky, and he became known as a Kentucky frontiersman. But of course, he, he is from, I believe, somewhere in Pennsylvania. I'm remembering his history correctly. Came down, he swooped down into North Carolina, and then he came up through the Cumberland Gap. And so I was very, very interested in these images. These images are everywhere in Appalachia. He's celebrated in all these different ways. And also at that time, I was trying to figure out a way. I began to amass a lot of images um, in this project that I didn't really know what I was doing with. And so I found that there were three types of images that kept coming up over and over again that many painters depicted. The first was the, there's the, him pointing out Kentucky, his discovery of Kentucky. Uh, he did not discover Kentucky. He would even never say that he did. But a lot of people attribute that the discovery of Appalachia to him. I always try to say he he was the person that ushered in capitalism to Kentucky, which is a notable thing, <laughs> but very different from discovering it. And then there's that moment where he takes some settlers with him over the Cumberland Gap, and they make it look like this is his first time coming over into that legend, but he had already done this like three times before. <laughs> and so, and then arrival, that's arrival. And then the next section is called exploration. And that's where things get really murky because the, you know, colonizers and the, um, or the colonialist and the um, native 
population kind of mix in very strange ways. And in this case, Jemima Boone, his daughter, is taken by the Shawnee and held captive. And then there's this like really beautiful rescue. But And then the last section is salvation. And that is when Daniel Boone retires to Missouri, where there's a been a fight over his bones. I don't know if you know this, but half of his bones are buried in Missouri and the other half are buried in the place I was born, Frankfort, Kentucky. And so I found this to be really helpful as a way to start to organize the work. And so that's kind of how I became really interested in those images. Interesting. You mentioned kind of that, that, that boon history rippling through European American culture. Within European American culture, that story, the story of the capture of Boone's daughter, kind of ripples through media. So the story is first told in an 1813 book called The Mountain Muse, written by Daniel Bryan, and then it is massively popularized in an 1821, I think, 21 poem by Samuel Metcalf called Indian Warfare in the West. So it, it, you know, it's a great example of how American art is responding to various forms of American literature, all of, all of which is mythologizing events that were mythologized. So speaking of Boone and speaking of the settler colonial project across the Appalachians, violence is a major subject in your work, especially in your series, the one you mentioned a moment ago from the study on post-pubescent manhood, which is included within the recent Twin Palms book. In fact, violence has been a subject really from like the earliest project you present on your website, which I think we'll come back to at the very end of our conversation. Is your interest in violence at all related to the violence behind or or masked by those Bingham and Ranny and whatnot paintings of Boone, those paintings of Western settler colonialism? No, I mean, it definitely predates my relationship with those images and that catalog. Um, I became really interested in violence because it made up a, a, you know, a huge part of my life, my childhood. My home was a very violent place and it really like sort of built this foundation of sort of what I still make my work about, which is not just violence, but about heroes as villains, villains as heroes. And so in this case, that would have been my father and trying to kind of understand the space between right and wrong, good and evil, black and, and white. And so much of the work is overtly about violence as catharsis or so like this uh, redemptive aspect of violence, in part because I just wasn't seeing a lot of work depicting violence in that way. And then a reckoning with my own personal history and also like a comfort around violence. You know, I think many people who grow up in really violent environments have a higher threshold for like certain types of chaos. And I've always felt kind of comfortable in those spaces. And so it drew me to want to make work around the different ways that we kind of use violence beyond evil. You know, for me, the history of violence in the Southern Appalachians, or really all of the Appalachians for that matter, is related to the history of extraction in the region, particularly the extraction of coal, which goes back to the mid-18th century in, in the European-American tradition, believe it or not. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you believe it, but I mean, listener, comma, believe it or not. And of course, has really begun to massively tail off during um, our professional lifetimes. Are you interested in extraction as violence or is that less interesting to you than the than human interaction 
and, and the way violence is expressed in the latter. I guess I'm interested in that, but you know, part of that story is about the mountaineer, right? This this uh, person who kind of was ushered in with Daniel Boone. Um, you could see some of the mountaineers were already there, but many of them came along with Daniel Boone, and they were, you know, uh, people who were trapped in the lower class in Scotland and England. They come over to America, and they are trapped in that same system, and they realize that they can go into this mountain terrain and live a life that is outside of capitalism, that is, you know, where they can dictate how they want to live. And that group of people, the Mountaineer, also has a, a real history of violence and feuding, as we know with the story of the Hatfield and McCoys. And it is an obsession that a lot of people have, both living in Appalachia and outside of Appalachia, with the that kind of feuding and, you know, moonshine and drunken behavior that turns violent very quickly. And those are all things that are, I think, very much like Daniel Boone, still kind of living and breathing in the air there. And, you know, then what happens is the mountaineer is in Appalachia living a sort of utopian life where they, you know, hunt, trade, farm. Right. And so they have everything they could possibly want. And then these land surveyors come in and steal the land from them, literally steal the land from them. And they decide that they own it because, you know, the mountaineer didn't know that there was even paperwork to get to show that they owned their land. And it is those people who stole their land that trapped them in this poverty, a very violent poverty in uh, coal towns that were built by these land surveyors. I believe that among the people trapped in, in that circumstance, albeit further west, was Abraham Lincoln's own family who left Kentucky over a surveying land dispute. I'm really interested in what you say about people feeling trapped. And one of my very favorite Stacey Kranitz pictures is kind of about that. It's a picture of two elderly white dudes standing in a cage that juts out into a quarry. And then the quarry is is a very old, inactive quarry. We can see that the trees have grown up above and, and within it. I, I guess the obvious question is, how did you get that picture? And then secondly... What do you think of that as being a picture about? I mean, I guess I was really drawn to that image because it is there's a separation between myself and the subject and then the subject and the land. And so, you know, I think it gets at the heart of some of the things that are really important to me about insider-outsider relationships. Another thing that this this work is also about. You know, what's great about that idea is that, so think of those paintings again, right? Yes. And, and, and what happens in those paintings is Ranny and Bingham and, you know, everybody else is painting Boone as, as, as being in the land, of the land, from the land, becoming part of the land, an idea that is fundamental to American 19th century paintings of Westering, you know, going back to like Cole and Duran. Manifest Destiny. All of it. And so this photograph of yours, which we'll have up on manpodcast.com, you know, turns the thing on its head. You know, the guys are caged within land one suspects they know pretty well and, and can't get out. Yes. And it does very much speak to the story of the mountaineer, of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what the coal industry did, it, it took um, and gave very little in return. It still is taking and giving very little in return. You know, the next picture I want to raise is one that is about being trapped in a very different way. And that is by the extreme 
geology of of the region. I think people who have not traveled or hiked in the Southern Appalachians don't realize how dramatic and steep it is, how narrow and shallow the valleys are, how this is a region of great natural abundance, but that is extremely hostile to agriculture. Um, there just isn't the flat acreage to do it, you know, in, in, in most of the region. So there's a picture of yours that will also be on manpodcast.com of a very narrow valley, the gray houses that barely fill it. And you take that picture standing in a wintry forest. The tree limbs are between us and this narrow sitting valley. To me, the tree limbs almost feel like, like jail bars. And there are a number of pictures like this in your oeuvre that are of these really tight, shallow valleys. Do you find yourself drawn to those particular spaces because you think they can exist metaphorically or do they just make for really good pictures? I mean, I just think that they epitomize the um, coal town. So they really kind of illustrate how Appalachia feels. It's a, a tiny town stuck in between two very massive mountains. And so that isolation that I feel when I'm in coming upon a, a community like that, I think it was like very important to figure out a way to depict that. And it took me a really long time to get it right. Uh, <laughs> and so there's a it's few It's not images. something of which there are a lot of photographs in, 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 in American photography. It's not well represented within the American canon. Yeah, and it was tricky um, to figure out how to uh, show that kind of claustrophobia, the density um, and the remoteness all kind of caving in on each other. Speaking of coal towns, you made, have made, maybe continue to make a whole bunch of pictures of mining, deep pit-ish mining, mountaintop removal mining, all of it. I, I would imagine that one of the things that you have had to consider as you kind of embark on a project about Appalachia and the Appalachians is how much you wanted to show, glorify, dwell on, insert a better word here, what extraction actually looks like in the 21st century. How did you think through that? I think originally when I was making this work, I was much more interested in the history of depictions of poverty and what I was adding to that uh, conversation. But as I went, I became really enamored with the history of extraction in Appalachia. It is a really intense story. Like you said, you mentioned before, it's a violent story. And it is when I, uh, so when I started this work was at the very beginning of a very dramatic downturn in the coal industry. And so there was a lot of talk about holding on to this thing that never really gave the people much of anything because it was constantly boom bust. So there was never any stability from this industry. And it is a place that is a mono economy. And that is, you know, a very tricky sort of thing to bear for any region. And it has only created more poverty as the coal industry has declined. Um, so my interest has strangely grown in terms of uh, learning about the history of the labor movements and the coal community's role in uh, the rise of the unions and then the decline of the unions. These are really fascinating stories. And so right now I'm actually focusing on what post-coal Appalachia is, what it looks like. It's a very strange time as 
the coal industry is declining, we're actually seeing a rise in black lung, a rise in black lung younger miners. And so there's a lot of really interesting kind of things that kind of live in the vestiges of this mono economy um, that fascinate me. How do you think through how much you want to show land and photograph land relative to how much you want to show and photograph people? That's a funny question because I've always seen myself as a sort of second rate landscape photographer. And so I think I've always worked harder <laughs> at making sure that the landscapes really depict a, a sense of the humanity without the actual humans. And so I mean, I obviously I know that you have a history and interest in landscape photography, but I love that that's the uh, images that you're focusing on. It really, it really is kind of delightful to me. I'm currently working with a drone, and I'm <laughs> trespassing on uh, these strip mines, these massive strip mines, and I'm trying to figure out a way to make really interesting images that are very different from the kinds of images that we see of strip mines, usually taken from a plane, so obviously aerial depictions, but it. When you're actually in the mountains in Appalachia, it's very hard to see this devastation of whole mountains. And so some, I'm, some of that is because industry is very good at hiding it. it. It is very good at hiding it. But but the reality is that the reforestation efforts are quite abysmal. And a lot of this this flooding that we're dealing with is a direct result of the, the, the land being moved for the purposes of mining. It's a really significant problem in the area. There's a lot of waterways that have been have become very toxic from acid mine drainage and other uh, coal slurry sludge. So yeah, so I just started working. I, I don't know how interesting this is, but um, but I just started a, a new project, kind of trying to more deeply dig into this landscape and the violence of it. And I guess what interested me in doing that was that the challenge of it, the, the difficulty of it, of figuring out a way to make those images interesting. And, you know, being a photographer who probably excels at photographing humans, I figured it was a worthwhile challenge for me to undertake. Yeah, I've noticed everybody asks you about the humans. Everybody asks you about the fights and the whiskey, but no one asks you about the land. Because and it I seems sell at fights and whiskey <laughs> and drugs, sex, and making very murky exchanges <laughs> with my subjects. That's what I excel at. So here I am now, a landscape photographer. A thesis within the work is that the people are how the people are because the land is how the land is. You know, there is a lot of suggestion in the work that the you know the, what we were talking about before about people being trapped. You know, there 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 still is not in. 2023, an east-west highway across the state of West Virginia. They've been trying to build one in northern West Virginia for 50 years, and it's not even like halfway done. You know, it's a very rugged area. And the I think King Cole Highway actually <laughs> is another highway project that is just kind of laying, kind of half done, <laughs> but it's built on the top of numerous strip mines. So I see in a lot of the work, in the book anyway, you're trying to find ways into the land because, yeah, I think you're right. You have you have a fluid facility with the people, but I see I see land pictures as working on on kinds of I don't know almost explanations. Speaking of all of, of coal 
and the region's relationship with, with coal and industrial exploitation. Are you interested in foregrounding or do, do you think about environmental justice and, as, as a specific subject, I think is what I'm trying to ask. I do. And I have been with this newest body of work. But inevitably, it is not the environmental injustice, something that I have worked on in other projects. I have taken on environmental injustice, so I somehow continue to come back to it. But for me, in the end, what's so interesting is that there is a lot of environmental injustice in Appalachia, but I, I find those stories to be quite simplistic. And the stories that really are complex and strange are like the stories of the labor history. So they're like peripheral stories, too. So they're very much related. They're tangential to the environmental injustice, but they are. And then this 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 story of, of the rise of black lung, which is really an issue of health an issue of healthcare, but it is also very much related to environmental injustice. And so I started looking at things like uh, acid mine drainage, which is visually quite dynamic. Um, it's bright orange, but I, I just found this idea of coal making water dirty so obvious and so clear. And so I think in the end, I am making a story about environmental injustice in central Appalachia, but it will really look at the people. <laughs> yeah. Before you made photographs in in the Appalachians, you lived in southwestern Louisiana. And I had two Cajun boyfriends. And you made a series of work there. And I believe you started an MFA program in Louisiana before deciding that Irvine was going to be a little more difficult. Uh, yes, so I have a series of projects that I did in Louisiana, and uh, one of the projects is about Cancer Alley and a specific community there that is surrounded by the petrochemical industry. And I, I think from the very beginning of my career as what you could even call a photojournalist, I've struggled with making work that is socially concerned and making work that is deconstructing that kind of concern in photography, in the history of photography. And so what happens is I get an idea to tell the story of an injustice. And I am trained as a photojournalist, so I can do that. And then I do it and I look at the work and I am really appalled, like I said, by that simplistic storytelling of that. Here's the problem. It is ugly. We have done nothing to resolve this. And the idea, you know, which would go back to what, like Jacob Rees and Lewis Hine, you know, this idea of photography telling, you know, the story, like, you know, showing the people a problem, it feels like it's a return to that colonial construct for me. So it feels like it's an assertion of a right and a wrong onto a group of people. So I am telling, in this case, with the work in um, Louisiana, I'm essentially telling the people that live in this community, as though they don't know, that they're, they're surrounded by the petrochemical industry. And that these images that I'm making of that industry is going to be seen by people who are going to feel so much concern and compassion for this issue that they will set out to change it. And, you know, in the case of Lewis Hine and Jacob Reese, that actually happened, but it was a different landscape back then in terms of our attention, in terms of the media industry, in terms of the way we communicated issues. And 
So inevitably what happens is I tell a story in that way and then I literally, my skin crawls. I can't stand myself. And I feel like that storytelling is incredibly unauthentic and really serves no great purpose other than to tell people something that they already know, a community, something that they already know. And so that is a starting point for me, is a problem, is is an injustice. But inevitably, I I have to meet that injustice with a deconstruction of the history of that place and all the different ways that we have, I guess, so this is like kind of hard to maybe verbalize, but I have to address my hand, my role as an outsider coming in and telling people what is wrong. And that's kind of what I was trying to do with as it was given to me. When I look at the work, whether it's installed on walls or in book form, I don't think of it as telling people what's wrong rather than as showing people what is and often how, or at least suggesting how it came to be that way. I think that's because the work, the, as it as it was given to me, I, I sort of remove any vestiges of, of the problem and the answer to the problem. And so for me, it is a far more successful project than the project I did on environmental racism in Louisiana. There is a photograph within the Louisiana pictures of a woman in a long white dress looking at herself in a mirror. On the other side of the mirror, there's another woman in a long white dress. And seeing that picture reminded me that there are a lot of long dresses in your work. And you wear many of them, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment. Is that something you're just seeing a lot of? Or is there a pictorial or, I don't know, philosophical reason that so many long dresses end up on so many women and so many pictures? My first relationship to Appalachia, long before I found myself there to make a body of work over the last 14 years, was in my childhood. On TV, I saw a miniseries called Christie, and it is originally a novel, a, a Christian romance novel by Catherine Marshall. And that story of Christie, again, this is like the same stuff that we've been talking about. It is the story of someone, a missionary going in to a community. In this case, she goes to the mountains to teach the poor mountain folk how to read and write and other things like clean themselves. And what happens is she becomes and well, she wears these dresses. <laughs> so they're, I've read about Christy. Are they, are they like specifically ankle length dresses on the miniseries and in the book? Yes. Ah. Oh, well, the book, you know, they're not actual illustrations. Well, there is an illustration of her on some of the covers. But yes, uh, the miniseries has many of these dresses. And so I did, when I was a child, I became really enamored with this character and this idea of right and wrong and and, and going in and saving a group of people. Uh, but what happens to Christy is she, she goes in and she becomes undone. She realizes that her idea of right and wrong are not actually right and wrong, that there are many ways to be kind, to be good, be true, be loving, and many ways to, to do things. And it, that really got at the heart of what I am most interested in when I uh, make my work, which is I want to become undone by the people in the place. You often wear long dresses in your own work. They are photographs that are recognizably of you. Are they self-portraits? Are you performing a character? Are they something else? 
Yeah, I am performing Christy as a character, a contemporary version of Christy, who's a little bit sluttier because in the uh, Christian romance novel, she does nothing more than hold hands with her lover. There are two men that she is like vying between the uh, doctor and the preacher and um things are different nowadays and so so sometimes i those dresses are are cut quite short um <laughs> in the pictures of me but um but sometimes they're not sometimes, I mean, sometimes they are the not. bottom of the dress is dragging in a river it is true yes and so i've gone through like different phases with how i depict christy and, and my relationship to christy but one of the things that really interested me in sort of making sure that i did depict myself in the work was that I wanted to draw attention to the arrogance of my position as the storyteller, as the photographer. And I also saw a corollary between the photojournalist and the missionary worker. You know, both are going into a place, asserting a right and wrong under the guise of morality and capitalism. And I wanted to make sure that I connected those dots. And I wanted to find a way to do that in the narrative. And so it did, it's, it's strange. I was thinking about whether they're self-portraits because they are portraits that are taken by other photographers and sometimes subjects of, in the work. And I do some directing and sometimes I do no directing. So I don't know if they're self-portraits, but they are pictures of me. And there's at least one in each section of the work. And, you know, I'm, I also, when I was thinking about putting them into the project, I was thinking about a way to show that what I'm doing or what I have been doing in Appalachia is sort of like, I'm taking my fantasy that I have of this place, right? A fantasy that is built off of depictions in literature, depictions in uh, CBS miniseries called Christie, uh, depictions in paintings and, you know, all of these different media. And they are colliding with the reality of the circumstances that I experience there. And I feel like that is what the work is. It is that collision. And I, I wanted to find a way to really illustrate that just as, as you think that you are looking at my portrayal of a place, my understanding and knowing of a place, I want to kind of rob you of that. And so the self-portraits sort of, I, mean, I sometimes see them as kind of like a fuck you. And it's just like, yes, you think that I'm taking you on a journey to understand this place better, but I'm not doing that at all. It's not possible to do that um, because culture isn't something that is got can be gotten right. It's not something that we can, you have to experience and understand it for yourself. Other people can't assert what it is for you. Embrace complication. I've noticed that when you have pictures of yourself in your exhibitions, that there are not didactics that reveal them as pictures of yourself. It's true. And I had a number of conversations with people, including Kristen Potter, about whether they made sense at all in the work, whether they were even necessary, and whether people would even know that they are, that, that I am placing myself in the work. And I think in the end, it was very important part of the process of making the work was immersing myself in it and sort of kind of moving between that fantasy and that reality. And so I felt that those images had to be in there, whether people knew that they were me or not, didn't really matter to me. When you're making work, and I don't mean on assignment from, you know, a magazine or a newspaper, but when you're making work that you know is going to be fully determined and presented and shown and published by you, when you're making that work and you're in front of other people, do you think about empathy? 
I think about empathy a lot. I think more about intimacy and the erasure of the line between my personal life and my professional life. So my personal life, when I go back home and you know sit in my studio and process this work, first the me that is hanging out uh, in a community, engaging with people I meet. And I'm always looking for ways to erase that line. And I thought about it a lot. Why is that so important to me? Because it doesn't make, I don't believe that it makes me a better artist to erase that line, but I think it forces me to dig deeper into. There are a lot of Confederate flags in your work, and that reflects a decision to publish and exhibit those pictures, you know, not just make them, but to publish them and exhibit them. Did you have to think through that decision? And if so, how did that go? I did. And I think one of the things that I first realized kind of early on was that it felt very normal to depict these Confederate flags because they were in a lot of the places, the homes that I was going into, they were there. And so to selectively edit them out felt kind of dishonest. But I also respect and understand that for people that is a really triggering symbol. But no, my work is contentious. And I'm sure if you have had conversations with your friends, some of them find the work really problematic and some of them find it really, they really are drawn to it. And that's always been the way this particular project and much of my other work has has functioned. The contention is really an important part of the project to kind of get under people's skin to sort of force them to question whether a, a Confederate flag should be in a book about Appalachia. And so they inevitably that's why those those images are there because they are a part of the fabric of life. And they are less so. But you know, I started this project in 2009. And so that was, uh, you know, before we started having, I think, some of our more successful conversations about the flag, uh, the Confederate flag. And so I drive from my house to town into Smithville, and there used to be three Confederate flags that I would pass as I drove into town, and now there are none. And so I do believe that over time, you know, there's been a lot less of symbols of that kind of hate and that kind of history of supremacy. So, but it's still there. And I, I think if we ignore it, then we are omitting those conversations that we need to be having. There are a few photographers who come to my mind, peers of yours, when I look at your work and I want to throw out a couple names just to ask if they've been important to you, if there are things you've found in their work that you've carried forward or addressed yourself. First up, Larry Clark. I have always been drawn to Larry Clark's work. I think that he started out, and the first thing I was always drawn to was the self-reflective nature of the work. I always kind of see my interest in document photography coming from this rupture that happened with uh, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Um, and not so much actually Walker Evans, but more the text from James Agee and this sort of revealing of this like kind of narcissism and this like, you know, he's talking about these these poor white sharecropper families, but he's also sexualizing them at the same time. And I felt like there was a real honesty in that. And I think that about a lot of 
Larry Clark's work as well, obviously starting back with Tulsa, but even up to the way he interacts with the subjects of his films, the actors and the actresses of his films. Sally Mann. I mean, thank you. (laughs) I think I'm drawn to Sally's work because of the dark themes, but I don't know that I would necessarily directly connect myself to her. But the fact that you are makes me feel really good. I think Sally Mann believes in capital R romanticism and extends it. And I think, and I think you, that's why I would yeah. feel kind of hesitant uh, because that romanticism is such an important part of, of her, of her aesthetic. And you reject it in your work. You are, you are not a German, Scots, Irish, Scottish, transcendental romantic. It's true. It's true. Carrie Mae Weems. Yes. Very early on, I found her work and, of course, the self-portraiture. That's the part. Absolutely. Incredibly significant. Her and, I don't know, do you know um, Nikki S. Lee, her work? Yeah. Those were two artists that I was very much influenced by early on. Nikki S. Lee is very much playing a role. You know, it, and, it's, and it's like dissolving in this strange yeah. kind of identity crisis that is so fascinating to me. And then this last one I'm going to ask about because I see him referenced almost every time you're referenced and I'm and I'm not sure I see it Alex Soth. Yeah, I don't see it because I see Alex his work is incredibly beautiful, but it's it's romantic. There's an optimism there that I don't see in my work but maybe someone else does. I think there's some aspects of the way that we make our work that are similar and so maybe that's where that's coming from. I think that's got to be it because I don't think the work is similar. <laughs> yeah, but yes, we're kind of I on think, the opposite end of the spectrum. But you both get people <laughs> to look through the lens in ways that is provocative, or no, in ways that make for provocative pictures. Finally, I think that nearly the earliest body of work up on your website is a series called Target Unknown, which is a series that show World War II reenactors who are reenacting as Nazis. And within that series, you play a role, and that role is Lenny Riefenstahl. Why did you want to be Lenny Riefenstahl, and what have you gotten out of it since? So my interest in being a photographer, and originally, actually, I was really interested in being a documentary filmmaker, actually stems from Lenny Riefenstahl's memoir, which was published when I was maybe 15 or 16. And I purchased it at Barnes & Noble. And I don't know why I purchased it, but I did because I knew nothing about her. And I do remember that I was interested in her because I was interested in rebelling against my Jewish heritage. I think I was frustrated with religion in general. And somehow the fact that this woman was so awful, but also brilliant at the same time really interested me. I also really love the fact that this, uh, you know, she's this woman that constantly reinvented herself over and over again. And she would, by any means necessary, find a way to do what she wanted to do. And so she would use her sexuality, she would use her status, anything and everything that was at her disposal. And I actually found that really admirable because she was living at a time when it was very hard for a woman. And she was you know, one of the first women, I believe, to write edit and star in her own movie. And so she led this remarkable life. Again, she really spoke to that that thing that I was really interested in with my father, this idea that someone can be both so great 
and so evil at the same time? And how do we hold those people? And so from the very beginning of my interest in being an artist, Lenny Riefenstahl has played a really significant role uh, for better or worse. And when I went to do that project, the World War II project, I had no interest in portraying Lenny Riefenstahl, but it was an awkward experience to be surrounded by people dressed up like Nazi soldiers. And in part because of my Jewish heritage, but in part because it was just very strange. And I would get nervous and I would start talking about Lenny Riefenstahl because I had read her biographies and read her memoir and watched that really incredible, there's an incredible documentary that she's in where she gets really upset and storms off. And so I just knew a lot about her and these Nazi reenactors knew a lot about her because they had based their depictions off of her triumph of the will. And then I was, like many of my stories, you know, I start to tell the story in it and it feels very simplistic and kind of falls flat. And I felt like, oh, you know, here I am looking at these weird people who are dressing up as Nazis. And again, that was part of this, this body of work that was about violence as catharsis. But I felt like that was incredibly one-dimensional. And I felt like if I was going to continue to make this work, I needed to complicate that. You know, I needed to somehow turn that othering, that gaze a little bit more upside down. And so I had to dress up in order to be there. And so and usually when, so when you're there, people don't portray specific people like not someone's not actually portraying Hitler or Goebbels or any of these, you know, significant characters from the from the war. But I just decided to portray like <laughs> I did. And people were into it. And then, you know, that's how that all kind of fell apart. <laughs> One thing I could offer perhaps as a way of describing that project, maybe as, as, as somebody outside it, is that it has no Hogan's Heroes vibes. It, it has none of that sense of knowing winkingness you know in hogan's heroes all of the nazis are played not all but almost all of the nazis are played by jews and the, and the show is created by jews your series which is does, does not have satire or dark humor within it very much seems to be of people who believe it's it, it, it's a series that seems to be of people who are really comfortable embodying an evil stacy kranitz thanks very much Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really lovely. Support comes from Getty, presenting the groundbreaking new exhibition, Alfredo Bolton, looking at Venezuela, 1928 to 1978, on view through January 7th, 2024. Considered one of the most important champions of modern art and art history in Venezuela, Alfredo Bolton is shockingly underrecognized outside his home country, until now. The exhibition explores Bolton from several angles, including his photographs of Venezuelan people and landscapes, connections to artists of his time, and his involvement in the development of art history in Venezuela. Experience the show in both English and Spanish, and enjoy additional programming, including a film screening and live jazz performance. Learn more and make free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, presenting Sarah Crowner Around Orange, curated by Stephanie Weisberg, on view from September 8th to February 4th, 2024. Bold abstraction and intense color are signatures of the New York-based painter Sarah Crowner, who brings these elements to the Pulitzer. 
In three new site-specific artworks, Crowner pays homage to the architecture of the Pulitzer's Tato Ando building and the vision of Ellsworth Kelly, whose monumental wall sculpture, Blue Black, is on permanent view in the Pulitzer's main gallery. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's digital guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. The digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit, then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more info, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the highly anticipated biennial exhibition, showcasing 39 artists and collectives living and working in Los Angeles. On view from October 1st to December 31st, and filling nearly every gallery of the museum, this year's edition addresses the intersection between art, community, and everyday life. These practices embrace the value of craft, materiality, performance, and collectivity. Accompanying the exhibition are artists' talks, performances, screenings, and conversations. For more information on the exhibition and programs, visit hammer.ucla.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Christine Potter. In addition to being included in a long arc, photography and the American South since 1845 at the high, Aperture has just published Potter's second monograph called Dark Waters. The book extends Potter's interest in using the U.S. landscape as an ideological site by exploring how 19th and 20th century murder ballads marry sight to misogynistic violence. Bookshop and Amazon offer Potter's book for about $43 to $61. Christine Potter, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. The first picture of the land, as it were, in your new book, Dark Waters, is of a snake crossing a gravel road. Historically, going back to the Civil War era, Northerners referred to the South as, as a snake, both visually and, and textually in orations and whatnot. All of it, of course, stems from the, the biblical reference. So why did you start with a snake? And were you mindful of any of what my history nerd self just said? <laughs> You're right to say it's the first picture of the landscape. It is not the first picture in the book. So I think, importantly, this book begins with its, pe its peopled pictures of people. But the first landscape picture is like a shot, a warning. It's like a road, sort of like a little dirt gravel roll road. And then right in the foreground, you have a snake sort of, it's an impasse, you know, you're going to either cross that threshold or you're not. And of course, because I put it at the beginning of the book, you know, you do have to cross that threshold in order to enter the rest of the book. So yeah, I mean, were, were those ideas somewhere in my mind? Sure, of course. But also, it just felt like the right, the right picture to place at the beginning of the book. Yeah, an element of of land is danger. As you as you noted, and in ways we're going to discuss as we go along here, this book and indeed your your other projects feature this mashup of land and nature and human beings, portrait ish pictures of of human beings. And we're going to talk about that more as we go on. But I think before we get there, in the context of this book, I should explain that the book's project is to fuse landscapes in the South and in the Southern Appalachians to those of us who live there as a culturally distinct region, with references to murder ballads. 
So before I think we can talk about people, we have to talk about what murder ballads are. What are mur- what are murder ballads? Well, they are, you know, songs mostly of the folk tradition. I mean, the real genesis of them is, you know, most of them come from the British Isles, you know, came over with settlers and the the genre was adopted and extended by people who lived in the Appalachians. They are, as they sound, songs about murder. Some of them recount true stories like a, like a broadside would. They were there to sort of inform and, and entertain. And then, of course, the tradition also includes many songs that are just invented. So stories of murder that are fabricated. And the ones that I'm particularly interested in detail the murder of a man, a murder of a woman at the hands of a man. And that's, that's certainly not all of them, but it is like a, it's a lot of them. (laughs) It's a lot of them, it turns out. And, you know, I was kind of interested in this idea of, you know, what we culturally produce in the South and questions of, you know, some kind of chicken, or the egg question about whether the South sort of encourages the Southern Gothic or this kind of dark storytelling, or whether this kind of storytelling informs how we view the South. So, you know, murder ballads became a way and it wasn't it wasn't a primary way. I mean, I I should say that while it is pretty structurally important to the work in the end, it it wasn't at the beginning, it was one of those threads that kind of came in as I was researching and traveling and and just thinking broadly about, about the American South. So across the book, pictures of nature, of the land, of its waterways are interspersed with pictures of people, men and women. Who are the men? Who are the women? Well, it depends from picture to picture. I mean, I would say you know, 80% of the time or more, maybe I'm, I'm just out in the world making pictures and I don't have like a conceptual thrust behind what I'm doing. I mean, I do in the sense of where I put myself, but in terms of who I meet and how I make those pictures, not necessarily. But there are also studio portraits in this book, which clearly are intentional in a different way and and constructed in a different way. So if we take the studio portraits, they are portraits of women in a black box studio with one sparing light on them and they are wet and it is they're kind of theatrical and they are meant to they are meant to reference the women in these murder ballads. The other portraits you find in the book or pictures of people that you find in the book could be someone I don't know at all and I just passed or, you know, it could be someone who I've, you know, spent a couple of hours photographing. So there's no real, there's no real like singular answer to that question. The men are often, if not always, performing masculinity in some way, which comes up a lot in your work. And the women, when you say they're wet, they are clothed and drenched. Why? <laughs> I mean, I will admit that this was the largest step away from the kind of work I'm known to make, the kind of work I have engaged with over years, you know, bringing someone into a studio and doing something really theatrical with them felt kind of risky for me in a way, but I did I did feel the compulsion to do it. And, you know, they are clothed and wet. I guess the answer is because I was imagining they were the victims from these songs. So, you know, oftentimes in these songs, uh, a man walks a woman down or not, you know, 
they're not victims in my book, but they're based on the victims from these songs. You know, oftentimes a man takes a woman on a walk in the forest, they go for a hike, like it always starts in this very, like, often romantic way, or, you know, he's kind of tempting her, fooling her down by the river for a picnic, that kind of thing. So pastoral referencing, if you will. Yeah, in my mind, these women are always clothed. And, you know, I, I didn't have any interest in, in making something salacious either. I feel like there's a fine line there. Turn into like a wet t-shirt contest or something. Although now, now that you kind of mention it and put it that way, I did think of baptism and baptisms when I looked at mm-hmm. some of these pictures, maybe just because so many of the pictures were there in the book with pictures of, of rivers and creeks. Well, I mean, water is interesting in that way. You know, it it gives life and it takes it away. And I mean, that's to to me, that makes it kind of endlessly interesting to think about and photograph. And it's regionally distinctive in the sense that there is a lot of water that lands on and runs off of the Southern Appalachians. I guess because I'm me, I can't resist about wanting to ask about the land. Did you choose specific land and specific places for specific reasons? Yes. And that was really the generative seed of the project. So, you know, I had finished work in the American West. I was still living in New York City at the time, thinking about what I wanted to do next. And, you know, a few things were happening. I was thinking about where I grew up and whether I needed to move back, you know, to be around my parents who are aging. I was kind of thinking about that. My my now husband is a pedal steel player. So we were thinking about Nashville for sort of professional reasons. And anyways, there were there were kind of a lot of things going on. And I thought, well, could I could I make work in the South? I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to get out of here, to be honest, when I was a kid. So, you know, I decided yes. And anyways, I I, I sort of wanted to build an architecture for myself on how to enter the South as like subject matter. And, you know, I began remembering Murder Creek, which is near like kind of gray Georgia, central Georgia, a creek that I had passed hundreds and hundreds of times growing up there and that I had always sort of pondered about who lives there, you know, a little little shack down by the river, you know, how did it get its name, whatever, you know, there were a lot of questions about this. And so I, I began thinking like, God, what a like a horrible, what a horrible name for a creek in a way, but also really fascinating. So I started looking at maps and lo and behold, the South is just filled with murderous sounding bodies of water. Dead man's this, bloody this, rape pond. I mean, it's just, and so I thought that would be an interesting, like kind of entry point. Like, you know, the landscape is vast. I don't want to over control what I'm going to do, but I do have to give myself a destination. So, you know, I made these maps essentially that I could take road trips. So I was coming down from New York and I would spend a week driving around Eastern Kentucky or a week driving around Georgia, just kind of like hitting these places and sometimes, you know, hitting a jackpot. Like I would come across this incredible landscape and it, you know, would would be really photographically rich. And then many times just hitting a fence and can't get there or, you know, other impasses or just dried up riverbeds that, you know, weren't photographic at all. So yeah, that, you know, the initial architecture was sort of the history of violence in the Southern landscape as it, you know, sort of was carried, if you will, by these bodies of water, both literally and 
figuratively. Speaking of having photographed in the West, the West is considered kind of an easy geography for photographers. Ansel Adams famously said that once he came to the Southern Appalachians to try to make pictures, he just didn't think it could be done. He didn't like it. He hated it. He he just didn't, didn't didn't think there was a thing there. And of course, what he meant is that he couldn't find the thing and he couldn't figure out how to do it. Is that a challenge that you have considered and welcomed and, as I think the book obviously shows, solved? I didn't know that Ansel Adams said that, but I find it really interesting to hear. You know, when I was working out West, I... <laughs> I thought the challenge was, how do I make a new picture out here? You know, there's such a long history of of photographing the West in this particular way. And, you know, when I first went out there, I was just going to make portraits. I didn't know I was going to kind of deal with the landscape. And, you know, anyways, I was looking at that long tradition, Carlton Watkins and Ansel Adams and, you know, all the all those great masters of, of sort of Western photography. And I just thought, oh, they all have this like long vista view like this, you know, it's really pulled back and everything looks grandiose. And I, I started to understand that as like, in, in many ways, how it informed our view of the American West, how we could put our dreams and aspirations into those pictures because there was space for it. The South, you can't do that. It's 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 too dark and sinewy and grown over. And I can imagine someone like Ansel Adams couldn't figure out how to get a distance on it. But I will say, like one of my solutions, I think, when I was photographing in the West was was to let go of that tradition and to let go of that ambition of seeing the West as this like grand repository for, you know, American ideas. I actually was often lightheaded and dizzy and being affected by the altitude and you know, sliding down rock cliffs and you know, the whole thing. I was like, this place is dangerous. <laughs> And I, that really informed how I how I worked in Manifest. But when I came to the South, like this is a landscape I know. I grew up here, and I know you have to get deep in the forest to find the really beautiful things. But then you're deep in the forest, and you can't see it a long distance. And it does get very dark, even in broad daylight. And uh, that's really interesting to me. Yeah, and it's not just the forest. It's like steeper and more rugged in the Southern Appalachians than it, than it is in much of, of the Far West. And I think that. For, for for that reason and for some of the other reasons you mentioned, like pictorially, I think the Elliot Porter and George Massa and Sally Mann work is often just more difficult and more interesting than, you know, Timothy O'Sullivan standing on a rock. Although, you know, there, there, there's another photographer out there I, 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 I continue to find interesting and useful. And I guess I find Ansel interesting and useful too, but in very different ways. I mean, I'll say, I'll just add that again, after working in the West where even God, even the shadows are bright, you know, like this high desert sun is just all illuminating. And I had been printing that work for years and just really playing with these kind of high key, very silvery, images, which I loved when I, when I pivoted away from that, I mean, I really wanted to do a 180. I wanted to get into like the darker tones and figure out, can I make, can I, you know, what's my contribution to like Southern landscape photography, because there's a rich one, but like, can I get into really, really dark areas and parse out 
real photographic description tonally in those spaces. And to me, that was just an exciting challenge. Like that's in, in a way that's more of a technical thing, but that's, you know, for me, half the pleasure, if I'm honest. I know photographers love to talk in terms of photography, but but there are a lot of things in this book that descend from a, a broader art history. And one of them is your interest in reflection. You use, and kind of in a couple pictures that will come up in a moment, pointedly don't use reflection a good bit. So instead of asking why you use reflection, I want to name a couple of specific pictures and ask about them. One is the cliff from 2018. It is a picture in which I almost challenge a viewer to tell which half is the reflection, which isn't, and it's disorienting for other reasons too, shall we say? Mm -hmm. In that picture, how and why did you choose to use reflection? I don't know how to answer the question exactly, except to say the picture was there to be made. You know, I I, I kind of came across, across this very, very still water. And I, you know, like water is never twice the same is my experience, you know, weather conditions, everything else. But, you know, I come across this cliff face and it is in front of just what feels like a wall of black glass, which can make this really perfect reflection. And it, it sort of invites, at least in the way I made the picture and invited this, this kind of super commitment to like making a mirror image to holding the space in this very even way. I will say that printing this image is a massive challenge and it was, and I will say just in general, one of my fears going into making a book is not having super control over the printing and, and maybe some of these details being lost in the process. But I am happy to hear you sort of acknowledge the detail that exists in the reflection portion of this picture, because it was a hard one sort of accomplishment printing wise. But I, I don't know that I've answered your question. I, I, I will say I was I was just sort of interested and delighted by that problem, which is like, oh my God, I have a perfect reflection, but it's in the darkest tones possible. I mean, there's almost no light in this picture. So photographically, that is a very tricky problem to solve because if you make too long of an exposure, of course, you're going to get movement in some way. And so, yeah, I mean, that was just one of those kind of hard won successes. But, you know, I'm also interested in the fact that water is somewhat impenetrable sometimes like it it reflects back to you before you can see deep in it that to me is is interesting on a lot of levels it's a picture that almost seems like a thesis picture for the book in 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 that it's presenting the land as a rorschach test for the culture that the book substantially argues was born from the land and the land that was born from the culture well, I love that characterization. I'm going to steal it moving forward. It is kind of a Rorschach test, isn't it? <laughs> the very next page in the book features a picture called Hell for Certain from 2016, and it's a reflection in water viewed through trees, which to a photo historian probably reminds one of some foundational Carlton Watkinses from Yosemite in 1861 when mm -hmm. he didn't have, you know, you were talking before about this view we got of, of, of the American Far West and how it seemed to be open. Well, in 1861 for Watkins, some of that, much of that was a product of the lens technology available to him. He couldn't get the picture he wanted. He did want reflection pictures because he was informed by Emersonian transcendentalism and, and made a version of this picture you've made. 
is there, you know, I, I'm not sure there are a ton of pictures in this book that I would consider as being very specific addresses of very specific things in photographic history, but this one sure feels like it, is it? Uh, no, but, you know, I do think I've certainly looked at a lot of Carlton Watkins. Uh, I was looking at him a lot when I was photographing out West or when I decided to sort of look at the Western landscape, I guess. But no, I'm not directly referencing that, but I I think all these things are kind of sublimated and in the soup, so to speak. You know, they're kind of in there. And if I'm if I'm quoting things or if I'm composing pictures that feel familiar, it's because I've looked at them. I mean, the real story behind that picture is more comical. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I do I do use it in a serious way in the book, but I mean, the truth is, I was looking for hell for certain Kentucky, which was you know a point on my map, and I. I couldn't find it. I just kept getting lost and my navigational... Most Kentucky story ever already. Exactly. You know, when a little blue dot shows up on your map, but there's no other information. So I was just a blue dot in the grid. And I was, you know, in these really backwoods area. I knew I was close to hell for certain, but I'm not sure I ever actually got there. One of the problems about finding hell for certain is that people steal the signs. (laughs) all the time. So you can't, there's, you know, there's never going to be a sign that says welcome to hell for certain and it not get stolen immediately. So anyways, this picture was sort of made uh, under extreme confusion about just being literally lost in the landscape and sort of trailing this river, hoping it would take me to a, a more main road where I might get my navigation back. So yeah, there, you know, there's fits of comedy out there that luckily keep me, my spirits, keep me willing to do this another day, I guess. There are a lot of pictures in which you embrace confusion in other ways, such as Blackwater Swamp 1 and 2 from 2018, in which it takes the viewer a while to tell what is three-dimensional and what is two-dimensional in, in, in your view. And it's a thing that recurs in a bunch of pictures in the book, and it almost feels like or I guess I'm asking if it is a, a, an intentional and specific metaphor for both the confusion of the land, because the land in the Southern Appalachians is confusing, and maybe the relationship between the land and the culture it spawned. Yeah, that I mean, the, the, the pictures that feel disorienting certainly are intentional. And, you know, part of that, there's there's this whole component of the work, too, that is me trying to communicate something of how I feel when I'm by myself out in these spaces. Being by myself, you know, deep in the forest, I can't see at any, like, stretch in front of me. I often come up upon, you know, the dude down by the river. Or, you know, just you can be surprised by the presence of people when you... And I I should jump in to say that in this part of the country, sometimes that can be really scary. And for a woman alone, it often is. Yeah. So very few times have I not found that to be threatening or alarming, or at least put me in a position of I need to understand my, you know, how to get out of this situation. So, you know, sometimes being in a space and not being able to see a way out is part of is part of talking about that kind of psychic situation, if you will. I want to ask about masculinity in your work, but before I do, I want to set up a previous project of yours called Manifest. You worked on Manifest between 2012 and 2015. 
maybe to get to masculinity, could you set up for us really quickly what Manifest is about, so to speak? Well, I don't have a good elevator pitch in the sense that I actually think it's about a lot of things. But yeah, it, it does. It, yeah, it does alternate photographs of men with photographs of the Western landscape. And um, I think the title sort of it leads you to think about Manifest Destiny and the sort of history of that idea in America and what kind of men went West to like sort of conquer and find their find their riches. And, um, you know, when I went out there, I didn't know what I was looking for. You know, I often don't, I mean, <laughs> I I'm really just a kind of exploring. I did have this notion of like the American cowboy in my mind and, and the American West as a sort of generic idea. So it didn't entirely matter to me where I ended up, but I did end up in, in this one area on the Western slope of Colorado that I kept returning to and kept making pictures and, you know, I, I was interested in ways of sort of complicating those ideas or complicating the notion of this sort of like heroic male character who, you know, finds his lot out West. Like, you know, it's an incredibly inhospitable place. It's incredibly remote for that reason. Most of the people I met were, you know, <laughs> not rolling in riches, were not, had not conquered the land, were more itinerant or, you know, living in tandem with the land. But yeah, I went out there for a couple years off and on and, and made portraits and landscapes. And, I, and my engagement with the landscape really happened because it was so hard to find people to photograph. It was so remote that I could go days sometimes and not really see other people. So yeah, I started thinking about the history of, of photography in the West and like what my experience was out there, which which was actually to come back to a notion of disorienting. It was disorienting for a different reason. And that was mostly altitude. Honestly, I was I was like commuting from New York City from sea level and shooting at 9000 feet or upwards of 12 sometimes. And yeah, I found the whole the whole experience to be kind of disorienting and rugged and inhospitable and beautiful. There, there's a lot of examination of the construction of white male masculinity and manifest and in different ways in, in this book too. I know you come from a military and military base adjacent family. Mm-hmm. Was part of the project in both manifest and in dark waters always examining masculinity or did it and does it just emerge because it's in your cerebral cortex or something? I mean, I think both. I mean, Manifest certainly is more directive in that way. There's only portraits of men. They're alone. They're kind of engaged with me. I would say Dark Waters comes at it from another angle. You know, you're coming at it from like sort of the psychic space of a woman, like literally and figuratively. But yeah, it's always it's always part of what I'm thinking about. And I don't just come from a military family. I mean, all the way up my family tree are are colonels and generals and people of high regard and of kind of heroic accomplishments. And if they aren't in the military, they have some other kind of like heroic sort of history that is related to violence. So in the case of Manifest, you know, I was looking at uh, some ephemera my family had inherited about my great great grandparents who were actually not in the military, but they were sharpshooters. They were entertainers. 
uh, and they traveled with Buffalo Bill and then eventually made their own show that toured, you know, up and down the Eastern seaboard, but also in Europe. And, you know, part of what I was thinking about, which, which is a thread between these two bodies of work is how violence in the American landscape, you know, is revisionist and is entertaining. And, you know, that that's in the soup too, so to speak. Like that's something that's kind of on my mind as I'm thinking just about American mythology broadly, just how we celebrate violence, how violence seems sort of core to our mythology in general. And, you know, how violence relates to men, I think, you know, I don't have I don't have to state the obvious, you know, I mean, I think there's just a one-to-one correlation and particularly in my family. I mean, I could think of how most people were employed managing violence in one way or another. I think one of the things Dark Waters does a really interesting job of is pointing at that or suggesting it without being in ways that are different than artists have traditionally done that. There are, there are I think, two pictures, for example, of a road intersected by a a creek or a stream with a tire just at the side of the road, like a spare, empty rubber tire. And I think anybody who knows anything about American history can come up with about six pretty obvious associations between tire river and road. And so I think this all all related to the enforcement of whiteness and, and the constructions of European American masculinity. And I think that those moments in the book are really closely related to the construction of beauty and fear and violence, racialization and racism that run across the entire two and a half century long U.S. project, all without being Marlboro Man. Christine Potter, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.